Hi, I'm Tony. I'm Patrick. Welcome to Cave to the Cross Apologetics. We are working our way through uh, Scott Christensen's book on what about evil, right? And we have uh, worked our way to chapter 9, and we've been looking at this. No, we're on Romans 9. I'm sorry, t- chapter 13. <laughs> yeah, we're going to look at Romans 9, right. right? So we're on, so chapter 13, we've been looking at this juxtaposition between God's judgment and God's mercy and how that shows God's glory, which is the purpose for, you know, why God created in the first place. And so, and also this helps Scott Christensen have scriptural support for his greater glory theodicy, which he's attempting to, uh, to help us to work through. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we, we saw uh, Adam and Eve, we saw uh, the, um, and the fall, we saw uh, Abraham, we looked at the situation of him and his son, Isaac, and how God stopped him from, you know, doing that, but yet later God sacrificed his own son. And then we moved to uh, Exodus and looked at God uh, allowing the people to um, have mercy in coming out of uh, Egypt and yet judging Egypt, right? And again, we see this tension between these two, grace and mercy. And now Paul wants in this particular uh, section of chapter 13 to look (laughs) at Romans 9 and kind of you know, kind of put these things together a little more, right? And so he says, at this point, it's important to locate the exodus in the broader, um, you know, uh, panorama of uh, redemptive history and God's purposes for it. So in Romans 9, Paul unfolds, he tells us some of these purposes while taking some cues from the exodus. So Paul kind of grabs from the exodus to help us to see this. What he says, what Paul says, brings clarity to the greater glory theodicy. God's sparing of the sons of Israel and their deliverance from slavery are not the main points of these seminal events, he tells us. The Exodus is about neither judgment nor salvation, as important as both of them are. And we've been making this point that that's what it shows, but it's God's hardening of one group while showing mercy to the other is ultimately not about mercy and judgment, but about magnification of God's glory. Right, right. Right. And so that's what he wants us to bring out in this juxtaposition between these two things. Right. right? Again, we kind of fall back to, well, why is this happening? That's what the, the questioner in Roman sign, the interlock here, um, talks about. But Paul is saying, you're, you're focusing on the wrong people. Here's two, two people, but here's what God is desiring out of that. And so, so the focus should be on God. Uh, and, and, and that's what he's doing. He's refocusing yeah. the, the, the potential questioner's uh, point of view on, on uh, what the, ultimately the story is about. And unfortunately for us, even though we don't like to, to always say it, even though we're um, uh, uh, important characters in here, uh, the main character is ultimately God. Yes. And who he is. And so I, I would say that um, if, if you're looking to kind of look at uh, uh, Romans 9 in, in good context, uh, I, I taught on it uh, to a group of kids uh, of, on behalf of one of our, our pastors. And uh, I thought, okay, I can back up to eight. Mm-hmm. Well, I did back up to eight. Uh, but I, for my own study, I had to back up to one because <laughs> because Paul unfolds and unfolds and unfolds. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a rolling stone there. And you can probably end at 12, maybe, <laughs> and, and, and really get a, a, a good view of, of what uh, um, uh, Paul is, is, is writing about uh, in, in, in Romans 9. But R- Romans 9, he's, he's kind of pausing and he's asking a, a potential question 
Uh, yeah, he's uh, really meeting an objection, right? especially I mean, after eight. I mean, a lot of, I mean, yeah. especially reform focus is on eight. Uh, the, I mean, and and rightfully so. The right. the glories of God are are talked about here. The, the salvation. Oh, why does God do it? And 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 so uh, he kind of pauses and say, now some of you might say, and so that's what what Romans nine that's is. Right. is some of you might say, well, God didn't keep his promise because look what he's done to Israel. Right. Well, let's talk about Israel. <laughs> right. Right? You want to talk about Israel? We got notes. <laughs> uh, so uh, this is made clear in Romans nine. So uh, Paul indicates that God's sovereign purpose in election stands not because of the moral attractiveness of those whom he chooses to save in verse 11, but because he reserves the right to generously call some, but not others. Jacob, I love Esau. I hate. I mean, that's, that's the big one right yeah, there. Yeah. So this is the unrestrained prerogative of God, not a focus on man, but this is what God wants. Yeah. And yet this uh, uh, effusive, uh, effusive outpouring of his mercy is the principal mind means by which he magnifies his glory. Yeah. But it, we don't fall away and it's like, oh, God arbitrarily makes decisions on what he wants to do. No, no, no. There's, there's a purpose and focus for it. We might want to say, oh, this seems arbitrary, but God is saying, this is how I magnify my glory. Right. And so Christensen tells us, yeah, exactly. Christensen tells us that most, uh, most people who chafe at hard against the sovereignty of God do so be, because it impinges on their own sense of autonomy, right? <clears throat> Where they have to rule their own life. He says, but what Paul says strikes deeply at our pride, our self-centeredness, our woke uh, and our woeful lack of God-centeredness. Alluding to Jeremiah in the passage in Romans 9, uh, verses 20 and 21, Paul says that, but who are you, old man, to answer back uh, to God? What, uh, well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor uh, and the other for dishonor, right? So, you know, God is the creator. He's the sovereign Lord. He chooses what he wants to do with the vessels that he makes. That's yeah. kind of the point Paul is, is making. Right. There, right? And you know, Paul continues this this idea of, of uh, certain vessels being made by the creator God in Romans 9. Mm. Yeah. So we can uh, stand, uh, only stand quietly with Job, laying our hands over our mouths, as uh, Job 44, 40 verse 4 says, and after working himself weary to figure out why God's hand has rested so heavily on him, Job concludes, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Mm-hmm. That's the, the um, upsetting uh, end of the story of Job <laughs> is he says, why did this happen to me? Well, we kind of have a, a, a look behind the veil and see what's what's happening a little bit more mm-hmm. than Job. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, even we stand and say uh, th- this was designed so that God may be glorified in, in this way. And so uh, it's, 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 it's an interesting story because there's not a, uh, a, a release of the tension. It's mm-hmm. just uh, uh, the, the, the secret things belong to God and, uh, you know, the... the, the uh, creation magnifies his glory. Part of that uh, creation that glorifies him is for Job to suffer. So uh, when we cannot wrap our minds around God's ways, we must simply bow before the freedom he has to extend his in- inscrutable uh, mercies. We are in no position to question his goodness, his righteousness, or his wisdom. By definition, that's who he is. Those are the 
the the qualities of the exhibit uh, we we have life and 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 uh, existence and the ability to do logic and science and uh, no morality because of God's consistent character and nature and and the the Christian worldview is as us presuppositions like to say is 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 founded on the basis of who God is and without it uh, uh, all other systems fail because all of the systems are are incomplete and so if if we if we have the ability to do science, the, the ability to know things, the ability to justify those things, the ability to know uh, when things are right and things are wrong, rather than just personal preferences, then uh, we must, th- th- this is how even all creation made in the image of God um, signifies its acknowledgement of who God is. And so uh, that, that's, that's part of the glories of, of kind of the, the natural creation reflecting who God is. But ultimately in scripture, we're told this is who God is, and, and we can't impinge upon that because of of our very existence. Right, right. Good. And so, um, you know, kind of back to the narrative of Exodus here, this narrative puts uh, the primary accent on the prolonged and supernatural nature of the plagues. There's 10 of them. It shows, a, you know, that's what the focus is with regard to what's going on there. Plague, uh, Christensen tells us, after devastating plague continues until a crescendo of supernatural power seems to crack the earth under the, uh, you know, trembling feet of Israel's oppressor. So we get plague after plague after plague after plague after plague, right? Just learn your lesson already. (laughs) He says, but this astonishing display of supernatural retributive uh, power is only the setup for revealing where even greater glory for God reside. Paul asserts, right, in Romans 9, his assertions there indicate that the power and raft contained in the plagues and eventually the destruction of Pharaoh and his chariot forces in the Red Sea are but a foil for the far more glorious deliverance of Israel. So we can see, again, this juxtaposition between this, these awful plagues, this awful judgment, and this supernatural, glorious deliverance of Israel. And again, we see that, and so God glorifies himself through this. So notice, you need, and he's going to make this point later, and we'll see, you need the judgments in order to really see the mercy, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and so that's part of what's going on here, and right. he's, he's going to make this point. And while not the perfect analogy, as all analogies are, I, I think of Rocky. <laughs> Why is Rocky a good story? Why is one, two, three? Everyone loves four. Everyone should love four. We don't talk about five. We don't need to talk about five. Five is five didn't exist. It'd be nice. It'd be nice if they made a fifth one. They weird. They skipped straight to six, which was pretty good. But Rocky, uh, you know, pick of any of them. Uh, it was uh, probably less the first, but but why is the story of Rocky? Uh, uh, why, why does it why does it still inspire us today? Well, he gets beaten, and he gets beaten and beaten and beaten, and you, you don't go, oh, Rocky is really good because in in round one he he throws a punch and it knocks out the the person. No, he he's able to withstand the onslaught of 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 a, a better opponent until he. Um, after the first one, uh, he, he wins. You know, he, he, he comes up against the, the, the mighty Russian Ivan Drago, uh, who's, who's got uh, the drugs in him, who's, who's got the, the pristine training facility, and he's out there lifting, you know, uh, 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 tires. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> oxen carts and stuff. But we, we, we see that in, in that that's what makes it a good story is that it's not just, oh, God removes his people and, and there it is. 
there's there's um, there's the 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 buildup and then the uh, exhaust of oh look he did it and so he, here's the buildup of just just let the people go already guy mm-hmm. and and so he says oh, okay fine I will uh, for, for real this time and they're they're able to go and then he changes his for mind real, again for real. <laughs> he changes his mind again even yeah. even after the tenth time yeah. and so that's when God uh, deals uh, judiciously with uh, the Egyptians. We, we, we see, see the buildup and here's the ultimate release. So, mm-hmm. so uh, you know, God is the, the, the Rocky in this situation, a, able to, to, to allow Egypt to take this beating. <laughs> so furthermore, the paradigm of judgment and mercy in Exodus is but illustrative in the, of the broader purpose of the divine redemption that Paul seeks to make clear throughout Romans 9. The riches of his glory extended to vessels of mercy are magnified by their contrast to the awesomeness and unprecedented destructive destruction of the vessels of wrath. There are two types of people being made here. Uh, you know, this, this, this um, bifurcation that, that uh, uh, Paul is drawing here, Esau, Jacob, uh, Israel, non-Israel, the, 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 the people of the church versus uh, everyone else. How how can we how can we hold uh, how can there still be an account, and so here, uh, the focus that Paul kind of corrects us on is not looking at well why them but this is who God uses vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath and both vessels are used for His glory mm. to magnify His His, his uh, mercy and then to magnify his judgment. So the greater glory of God's mercy would be far less magnificent if God had not repeatedly hardened Pharaoh's heart, brought extensive and dramatic judgments on him and mighty Egyptians, and simultaneously rescued an obscure tribe of people, shepherds of no consequences, who apart from God's covenant promises would even exist in the first place. But that's why they do exist. That's why they continue to exist. That's why they exist uh, even to today, maybe, uh, and so we 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 see that um, that th- that's the, the the main crux of the argument is is the promise of God is not oh I, you know I I I remember those people I, I should really do something about them right. no 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 he is setting them there he's he he brought them in with Joseph and now with Moses and Aaron uh, he's leading them out and so this this is God's story which he then will use. For even more uh, magnification of his glory at the, the the biggest one of them all, and John, the incarnation. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, you know, Christensen tells us that this is one of the compelling strengths of the greater glory theodicy, right? I mean, this is what he's all about. He says it moves us to stand in awe of the incredible graciousness of a God who should decimate us, right? The moment that you know we have some errant thought. Right. We should, you know, uh, or our minds are polluted and strayed away and that sort of thing. God should deal with us. But he says the pain that we suffer under the hand of our own Egyptian overlords, oppressive (laughs) enemies, certainly causes us to cry out for relief and justice. But we cannot afford to forget that we are never free ourselves from our own guilt, no matter, you know, how much unwarranted evil is perpetrated against us. We are evil ourselves, yeah. right? If, if you read back in the Old Testament and you go, those silly Israelites, why are they doing those things? Remember, that story is for you yeah, too. That's right. that's right. And so he says, uh, unless we repent of our stubborn transgressions and cling to the mercy exactly. that God owes no one, by the way, 
we will likewise perish, right. just like the Egyptians. Right. right? Yeah. He, he cannot. He cannot owe because then it's it's uh, something that must be given, right. and therefore it's then it's not grace. Right. All right. Well, we move from the desert into the coming Red Sea, the Red Sea of <laughs> redemptive mercy. Uh, this leads us to the final scene of the Exodus, which provides a polarizing image unprecedented in the history of storytelling and history itself uh, in Exodus 14 here. Moses raising his staff before the Red Sea as the water splits open, uh, wide open before the quivering sons of Israel to be fully struck with the glory of their redemption. The Israelites simply need to turn around and gaze on the terror of the faces of their impressors. That's it. Just, yeah. just look, look, look who's coming for you. Do you want to see God's glory? <laughs> you want to see what God is doing? You know, you're on dry land. Turn around after you get over and see what's happening to the folks right. that are coming after right. you. Right? Here, here's a big word picture for you. <laughs> yeah. Then they must consider that uh, were it not for the free mercy of God, the watery cataclysm would be crushing them as well. Deuteronomy 15, 15. And remember who also went out with uh, with them, some of the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why did how did how did they get saved? How did they get brought in? Because they believed on the mercies of God, and and, and is, is it because uh, they were more holy? Because they were they were uh, more more uh, spider sense to to who God is? <laughs> no, no. It just says and and uh, because of of God's uh, uh, um, mercy, uh, mercy of, yeah. of of this plague, He was able to lead some of them out as well. Yeah. Uh, so Noah's ark has been made of wood and rode on top of the waves of wrath. And their ark, the Israelites' ark at this time at the Red Sea, was made of sand and cut a path through the waves of wrath. Right. Very, That's very cool. And, and mercy, yeah. So uh, Christensen tells us that John Piper summarizes Paul's, uh, you know, theosodical purpose. Uh, he says that God's chief end in creation and redemption is to display for the benefit of his elect the fullness of his glory, especially his mercy. The brilliant diamond of divine mercy is magnified, Christensen tells us, against the back, the dark black uh, backdrop of divine justice. And so neither attribute, he says, would find occasion for display unless God ordered evil to overtake his creation, right? So, God, so evil is there so that this can happen, right? And so, again, he's getting uh, back to his, uh, you know, his defense of his greater glory uh, theodicy, right? Right, right. So apart from a creation and the subsequent fall of creation, God has no opportunity to display justice or mercy. Right. In other words, why would God need to display just and mercy, justice or mercy, right, uh, apart from the fall? creation and fall, right? right? And so right. this allows God to display that portion of his character and therefore that portion of his glory, mm-hmm. right? right? This isn't something he learns. He is just, he is merciful, and he shows this, and there's there's the key, the showing uh, in the creation uh, in, in the, the creation of the fall, yep. yeah, yeah. There's certainly no need to display these attributes among members of the imminent, the ontological trinity. And in eternity past, from our perspective, such divine attributes lie dormant. They, they exist, they're there, uh, but uh, they don't need to be turned on. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nonetheless, every evil that exists in the created order is explained in one way or another in relation to God's justice or mercy. 
a universe without evil would be a universe without divine justice or forgiveness. Boy, that is amazing, isn't it? So if there's no evil there, then there is no justice, there is no forgiveness, there is no mercy, mm-hmm. because there's no need for that to be displayed. Right, right. right. And, and uh, you know, Adam and Eve don't fall. Uh, they continue on. They, they, they expand the, the, the Garden of Eden out to the world. And God goes, well, I'm, I'm just and merciful. And they go, okay, yep. Um, I, I don't know what that means, uh, but, but yeah, I, we'll, we believe you. Yeah, we'll, you're, yeah. Uh, look, look at all, all you've, you've, you've done and accomplished. So yeah, it, 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 it's a, it's a weird thing to say, well, thank goodness for, for the evil that, that happens because uh, we can see the, the, even more the story of God played out here. Mm-hmm. Once uh, God freely decided to magnify his glory in creation, he had the order uh, he had ordered the fall. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then he quotes John MacArthur, who makes the same point, actually. He says, God demonstrates his attributes for the sake of his own glory. Without sin, God's wrath would never be on display. Without sinners to redeem, God's grace would never be on display. Without evil to punish, God's justice would never be on display. And uh, he has every right to put himself everlastingly on display in all the glory of his attributes, right? That's what John MacArthur tells us. And so it is the work of redemption that uniquely uh, encompasses the full display of divine attributes in a way that the singling out of God's wrath and justice and acts of uh, judgment alone does not reveal. Right, right. right. Yeah, and even if he did not uh, save anybody, uh, if he judged, okay, there's there's one aspect, but how does he show that he's also merciful? He saves some. Mm. Mm-hmm. All right, so God's maximal uh, discriminating love. Oh, so discrimination. <laughs> Notice how God's love is both a maximalizing and a discriminating love in this theodicy of redemption. Many theologians and philosophers who wish to rescue God's omnibenevolence is all goodness in the face of the problem of evil assumes that if God is truly all loving, then his love must extend to all equally. But this is clearly not the case as we mm-hmm. see in Romans 9, especially verse 13. Why? Well, because there's evil in the world. That's why he doesn't save everybody. All right. So God did not prevent the Egyptians from enslaving and brutalizing even his own chosen people, the Israelites. God did not prevent a Judas from betraying Christ, nor did he prevent the acts of any of the other participants who brought about Christ's death. He ordained their actions so that redemption, right, and redemptive good would uh, overflow to countless objects of his mercy, right? In other words, Christ had to go through this so that we might receive mercy. Mm -hmm. This unique display of divine love and goodness could, uh, Christensen tells us, ironically, happen only through his enemies' acts of evil, right? Their hatred, their despising of neighborly love, all allows God to display his, his glory, his mercy, his grace to, to us. Yeah, yeah, and when we get to the New Testament and, and John here, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of focus on that uh, a lot more and see um, kind of against the backdrop how impressive that is. So there's often the assumption that God should extend his love to all maximally. Yeah, just give it to everybody, right? Yep, you're still merciful if you save everyone. Well, <laughs> uh, b- b- I guess I guess this world exists where God cannot save certain people. That's, that's what uh, uh, some on the, the other side say. But can we say that the uh, the extension of this evil less love 
maximizes God's love, if we are to speak of divine loves being maxim, maximized, is this the way it has to be done? And can it be done for all people? Uh, he, uh, Christensen says, no, and here's why. Without ordaining at least some significant evil, it is not possible for God to maximize his love to any. Well, how so? The maximal display of God's love towards his creatures is uniquely located in his mercy, and mercy as an act of divine love makes sense only when it comes in the face of evil. And so this also explains the, the, the gravity of, of evil. Uh, you know, it, it's not just uh, evil a little bit. It's the, the evil and the big things. Yeah. And then God redeems those things. Uh, he, he's, he's merciful to people. Um, he um, ex- extends mercy uh, uh, to, to, to great evils. And we, we, we see uh, to what degree he is merciful by... Um, contrasting it with the evil acts. And again, you know, we, we all would want to point to the Holocaust or genocides or all these things, but the perfect God who became a man is, lives a perfect life. He's the one that's demicide. He's, mm. he's mm. murdered. Mm. And, and that should be the, the, the biggest uh, idea that we could c- come to think of. So, so if you want to put, you know, the, the sexualization of children or, uh, useless murder or uh, the prom queen uh, gets killed by the drunk driver and the drunk driver survives. All terrible, all mm, bad, mm, all evil. Mm, but look at the, the contrast of, of sinful the creatures. Perfect son of God. Who to dies. that. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And so Christensen tells us that mercy comes in two ways. First, it comes to sinners who don't deserve it because they have been uh, perpetrators of evil themselves, right? So he extends mercy to sinful people. So that's the first way that mercy comes. And then second, he tells us it comes to those who have been victims of evil, both natural and moral evil. The, The greater the evil, the greater the mercy that pardons its perpetrators the ones that don't deserve it, and heals the wounds of its victim. Those are the ones who have been victims of evil, right? So those are the two kind of ways he says that evil comes to the the sinners who don't deserve the the, uh, mercy and to the judgment of the perpetrators. For both these kinds of divine mercy to occur, actually the non-judgment, for both of these kinds of uh, divine mercy to occur, he tells us people will have inevitably and necessarily suffered at the hands of wicked people or unfortunate calamities. Right. And so this rules out any kind of maximal love that prevents at least some evil from taking place. You gotta have it, right? That's what he's getting at here. So God's love cannot prevent evil from happening if he intends to maximize his love via mercy to others, whether it be the perpetrators of evil or the victims of evil, right? And furthermore, he says, God can maximize his love in this way only to some and not all. Right. Uh, and we have to, to uh, remember that God uh, exists not as only one characteristic. He's not only love. He works in perfection with all his other characteristics. So the, the d- divine simplicity of God uh, um, uh, comes into to stake here, and and so we see uh, if 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 this is the case, if he wants to to magnify his mercy and be merciful, then these other things have to take place, and so his love uh, is balanced by his mercy and his judgment. His judgment is balanced by his 
love and his mercy. And his mercy is also balanced by his love and his uh, judgment and all the other ones that I haven't mentioned. Mm. Mm -hmm. All right. So nonetheless, some will still protest. Mm -hmm. All right. Let us concede. They say that maximizing God's love via mercy means permitting evil. So why doesn't God permit evil, uh, but then show mercy to all, especially to sinners in the face of their unbounded rebellion? All right, so there it is. Okay, fine. Let's say that, uh, you know, this mercy, evil must be permitted for God to show mercy. So let him have the the evil, but then show mercy to everybody. That's the objection here, right? What prevents him from showering everyone with a boundless grace and a feat of universal salvation couldn't the death of Christ atone for the sins of all so that all might be saved? Right, and Christianson tells us a big <laughs> no, <laughs> right? He says, because Romans 9, 22 and 23 indicates that God's wrath on some is precisely what magnifies the mercy he pours out on others, right? Thus, this maximization of divine glory and this is what the greater glory theodicy argues, he right. says, is connected to two important realities. First, maximal love to God's creatures is uniquely displayed in his mercy. So that's a that's an obvious, that's a no-brainer, which requires, by the way, that evil be experienced by others, mm-hmm. right? And second, this mercy is further maximized when contrasted with those who get what they deserve, right? Divine wrath. And so uh, this contrast between wrath and mercy highlights and maximizes God's glory in ways that could not happen otherwise, right? So God has to judge uh, some, as it were, if he wants to accomplish this glory, right? right? And, and uh, mercy is maximized uh, through the judgment of some, right? Because notice, all should be judged, and yet uh, God does judge some, but he shows mercy on others, and so his mercy is magnified, and that's what he's trying to get at here. Right. And again, he doesn't have to show mercy. He's not required to because then it's not mercy. It's not grace. But he does, and so he's uh, uh, exhibiting qualities uh, from himself to his creation that uh, that um, that he um, can can maximize those those qualities. And so uh, that's why he allows some evil and restrains um, others. Mm-hmm. Our our hearts are, if if we were not constrained by God's uh, common grace, then we would be even worse than what we are. And so there's God acting in the in the general capacity, but He enters in uh, in, in a specific type in specific revelation there. So the fall and our hopeless capacity to the curse and to our own helpless wretchedness places us in a desperate context whereby mercy becomes an inconceivable and glorious gift. Mm. Thus, if all receive mercy, mercy becomes domesticated, banal, expected, even demanded. Right. It's no mercy at all if everybody, I mean, that's now it's just what's expected, right. what's we demanded, right? Yeah. right? It's, it's uh, meaningless. I, I plugged myself into the equation. I came out perfect on the other side. This is what <laughs> must happen. When a vile sinner sees the fierce wrath that he most certainly should have incurred from a just and holy God and was rescued from its rescued from it instead, he joyously marvels at the mercy of this one who retains the right to put us on trial. This one who is judge, jury, and executioner. It says, uh, you know, we we kind of contemplate and and look at the the uh, the 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 nastiness of hell and say. I, I, d- I deserve and belong there as well, but 
I'm saved out of it. And and, and not just saved out of it, but saved into uh, the family of God. I have the the right to be called the son and or daughter of, of God. And, uh, you know, that, that, that contrast. The blessedness, the presence with God in heaven and that sort of thing, right? Being made right, being made whole, being made the way that uh, was originally intended. All, all these things are are the, the stupendous that we don't deserve, but yet God. Yeah, <laughs> but God. Yeah, that's right. So God's glory, he tells us, in Israel's deliverance was magnified precisely because of the unmitigated judgment that the Egyptians both incurred and that they deserved, right? God is under no obligation to extend his mercy. Otherwise, it would not be mercy, right? It would be, the, it would be you know, merit, right? Mm-hmm. The, what we owe, what he owes us. It would be a wage. So, uh, right. nor is God unjustified to carry out the full weight of his wrath on willful recalcitrant sinners, right? In other words, uh, God is just and he's, he can judge sinners. He doesn't have to give mercy, right? So when God carries out his justice, it highlights those rare and precious moments, Christensen tells us, when he chooses to show mercy, right? Thus, if God's love is to be maximized, it, it can be um, none other than a discriminating love, right? And this discriminating, this maximal love to some and not all is what uh, supremely magnifies, that is, maximizes uh, God's glory. Right. right? And so uh, we, we kind of close out this chapter with a look at the, the New Testament here. And so uh, we see the redemptive glory in uh, John's gospel. And so he says the U-shaped monomythic themes abound in the New Testament, uh, but he focuses his attention on a few episodes in the Gospel of John. A succession of incidents in the Gospel of John serves to highlight the redemptive glory of God by setting forth some illuminating contrast. One of the ways that he seeks to convince his readers to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is to see how God's glory is magnified in his Son. So what are these contrasts? Well, the first one we find in, um, in John chapter 9 is uh, the glory in blindness, right? That's almost uh, contradictory, <laughs> right. right? The glory in blindness. You can't even see. How can you, you know? Uh, so the first narrative occurs in John 9 where we read, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. So this guy could have never, never saw yeah. anything Doesn't even know what his he's whole life. Yeah, yeah right? The disciples uh, assert about the sinful cause uh, of the man's blindness are not accurate, right? Uh, Yet their assumptions are not entirely unfounded either, Christensen tells us. They realize that blindness has no part in the good creation God made. It is one of the natural evils that befall the world cursed by Adam's sin. The wonder and beauty of creation ought not be hidden from anyone's eyes, but the poor beggar, this blind man, has experienced the unfortunate effects of this fall all of his life, right? And so now when Jesus proceeds to explain the man's blindness, it is obvious that it entails a divinely orchestrated purpose, Mm -hmm. right? He says this isn't his mother nor his sin, but for the glory of God, right? right? There is... is, uh, insolvent in saying that God ordained this natural evil uh, to overtake a man, even as his, um, from infancy, right? right. He, was, he was blinded. And before he had an opportunity to do good or evil, he was blinded, right? <laughs> right. And so, yeah, so yeah. this was, uh, you know, God has 
put this in place for a particular purpose, right? This evil, this unfortunate circumstance, this total blindness of this man for all of his total life, God put that in place for his glory, right. for his purposes. And, and, and like how we want to do with Job, what his friends do in, 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 Job, in Job, is they, they look at, well, who, who sinned here? Uh, the, the, his mother and father, or did he commit a sin? Uh, what caused him in this in this broken world to be like this? Because this is part of the brokenness. Mm. And like uh, like uh, 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 Job, Jesus says, "You're looking at it the the wrong way here. It's it, he he wasn't um, uh, uh, punished because of 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 sin, which was the result of his blindness. But he was uh, uh, born blind so that he uh, that God's uh, glory may be." Uh, uh, exhibited here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Jesus indicates the man's condition was decreed in order that quote, the works of God might be displayed in him. This is what he was created for mm. the, this, this story we get to read about. He, he's here. Uh, this bleaker state of man's predicament provides the foil for God's extrinsic glory to be manifested to a greater degree. Dare we say that it was better for the man to be born blind, that the, there was a fortuneness to the fall? It appears that God thinks so. Mm. The Almighty is glorified not so much in the absence of suffering, but in its presence. And think about the blind man, unable to see since birth, and all of a sudden he sees the color blue <laughs> and red and the, 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 the steps where he's been at his entire life and the people around him and his mother and the father and the temple and Jesus. What a glorious situation. Yeah. What a, what a, I mean, yeah, just think about it. Yeah. Here, this man had never seen colors and now they're, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're uh, totally upon him. So he, he tells us that this it uh, this fact becomes clear in the aftermath when the man has to endure the preposterous indignation of the Jewish authorities, right, for the miracle that has taken place. You know, how can this man be from God? He's a sinner. How could he do miracles, right? Which is definitely the, the <laughs> attitude we would take, right? If, if, if uh, one of our friends who we've always passed is, is blind and all of a sudden can see, well, what about this man's sin? You yeah. know he sins, right? <laughs> that, that, that's that's the charge. <laughs> and so the the glory of Christ has been man, uh, manifested in the reversing of blindness, right, into sight, both physically and then especially spiritually. Notice as the man believes and worship, and and this is the point he wants us to see here. This glory is heightened by the irony of Jesus conferring spiritual blindness on those who, like the Pharisees, think that they see. Yeah, right? yeah. Here's the juxtaposition right here. This is what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. This, the, the holy men. <laughs> Uh, all right. How about uh, glory in raising the dead? Oh, yeah. Could there be glory in that? Yeah. Well, we think so. <laughs> in returning to John's gospel, we encounter a scene a few passages later in chapter 11 that opens with an even greater tra- tragedy. Lazarus, a young man in seemingly perfect health, suddenly falls ill and dies. Mm. He and his sister are some of Jesus' closest friends and most devout followers. And when Jesus hears of his beloved friend is sick, he deliberately waits to show up to Lazarus' home in Bethany. <laughs> wow until he has already been dead for four days. Right. And um, kind of uh, uh, four being 
all right, uh, it's it's long past the the. We can just shake him awake and like, oh, he was really uh, not yeah, dead. Swoon. And and there's there's this kind of idea that the soul stays with the body in Jewish uh, kind of mysticism, uh, stays for with the three. soul for three days. Yeah. And so yeah. what does he wait for? There it is, right yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> now, some would suggest that you know it's callous that Jesus waited this four days, right? Even scandalous. Uh, Right, uh, this response from Jesus, and, and a side point: mm-hmm. the Jesus weeping here, the the shortest uh, verse, is is not at at the the death of Lazarus because mm-hmm. he knows what he's doing. Oh, yeah. So Jesus is weeping. I'm not going to get into it, but there there's another reason. It's not just oh, Jesus looked at the horrors of of death. I'm sure he was moved to to, to compassion. But why is he weeping if he's if he knows he's going if he waited on purpose and he's going to raise him from the dead? There's there, there's a, a different reason that we should look into, but that's that's a side uh, lecture that that we'll give later. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, Christensen tells us that uh, you know, given Jesus's foresight of the matter and requisite powers to heal uh, Lazarus, some people would say that this is kind of scandalous, right? That he could have easily prevented his death and all the grieving and the crying and the weeping that it produced. But Jesus has a good purpose that will emerge right from the core of the pain of death. He declares, quote, this illness does not lead to death. Right. That's verse four. Now, by death, he means permanent separation, uh, you know, from the presence of this world. Uh, instead, Lazarus's passing, verse 4 says, is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So there it is, right? This um, death glorifies God. This heinous thing, this perhaps scandalous, callous acting on Jesus's part, perhaps, will lead to God's glory, mm-hmm. right? Now, clearly, Jesus wasn't callous, right? He did cry over, you know, various things. And he, uh, you know, this really wasn't a scandalous response. This was part of what God uh, was attempting to accomplish, right. right? But see, he violated Lazarus' free will by not asking him if he wanted to be raised for the dead. <laughs> he, he, Lazarus could have said no. It's, it's clear the case. He has free will. The, the dead person in the tomb m- must be able to say, uh, yes, I, I'm, I'm slightly more, uh, still alive in here. My, my, my ear hasn't fallen off my body. <laughs> I'm, I'm responding well because, uh, I desire to, uh, well, I shouldn't use desire I, because I want to, uh, because I know Jesus really, really well. You know, it seems like, uh, yeah. Lazarus doesn't have any say. Yeah. In, yeah no in say this. in this at all. Mm, okay. Right. I wonder if we could apply that to, to some other things. <laughs> <laughs> so the healing of the blind man in John nine was unexpected and remarkable, but death always appears irreversible, right? Yeah, right. So clearly, you know, it's unexpected, right? And, and that this healing happened with the blind man. But what in the world can you do about death? It erases that's the, that's all the end of it. Yeah. Yeah, right. So when uh, Jesus calls Lazarus to return from the grave, it strains credibility. Who expects the coming reversal of this conflict? A dramatic shift of emotions among the dumbstruck witnesses occurs in the span of mere minutes and in the uh, compacted moment, God's glory lights on them with unforgettable force. Probably a story they talked about for a little bit. <laughs> they go from utter despair to overwhelming joy, from shouldering the unbearable curse of death to beholding the wondrous blessings of life restored. The polarities serve as m- the magnifiers of God's extrinsic glory. No wonder so many come to faith in the Christ. Yeah. 
All right. So lastly, then he talks about, you know, the greatest uh, opportunity for God to display his glory here, the glory and the cross. Right. right? He says, ironically, the most shameful incident in history reaps God's greatest glory. We see here that is in the cross uh, an identity of the glorious and the crucified. Uh, This odd and, uh, you know, it's kind of odd. He says this is odd. How uh, is glory found when the hero of the story finds himself massacred right, on a rough-hewn plank of wood? How is that glorious? Yeah. Where does glory come in that, right? Good Friday, they say, ironically. No, not ironically. Yeah. So the crucifixion, he says, is no accident at the end of an otherwise uh, glorious career. Oops, okay, well, I guess he had, you know... He uh, he didn't end in happily ever after. Better lock ourselves behind this door because the Romans <laughs> they're coming after us next, yeah. right? He says rather the crucifixion, the cross represents the purposeful culmination of Jesus's long descent into ever darkening depths of humiliation. Yet paradoxically, he tells us the depths of his humiliation directly corresponds to the heights of his glory. Right. So this tragic thing is for God's glory, right? God's going to use it for his glory. Jesus wades vulnerability into the hearts of evil and succumbs to its inexorable consequence, death. Nonetheless, Jesus cannot remain a hostage to death. Thus, his glory is magnified in two stages, the first stage in the crucifixion, and the second stage is the resurrection. The crucifixion of the incarnate word has all the appearances of undermining the glory of God as nothing else possible could, Yet the resurrection of Christ is the great reversal in the greatest plot that vindicates the greatest climax, the cross, in the greatest story that history has ever told. So how does Jesus defeat death? He dies. And then he raises again. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. That's that's the the story. (laughs) That's why the the entire focus of creation is on the cross. It's it's, uh, set up on a pole. And from there, you teeter on either side of it because that's the focus that we're supposed to be uh, 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 looking towards. It's it's uh, uh, s- symbolic in in the Moses raising up the the serpent on the pole in the desert, uh, and and Jesus says when you look upon that, uh, th- th- those who look upon it, uh, and not just oh I uh, glance at it, it's I'm looking to it for the hope to save me from the sting of sin. That's where uh, salvation is found, and I'm given life because of it, mm. and not just life here on earth. And we we live forever toiling and 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 being subject to the sin, but having everlasting life, and then God ultimately cleansing the world of all sin and and uh, His His uh, glory and and mercy is is fully um, uh, played out in the uh, restoration. Uh, uh, after uh, the the new heavens and the new earth come, and we uh, live in a world without sin. Amen. Amen. So, there's more to this chapter. Please read it. Amen. There's more to to read after this chapter, mm. uh, and not just in this book, but in other ones. And again, um, if you find found um, areas where where you're questioning, uh, he has key terms, study questions, further reading, and advanced reading. Of course, there's a healthy uh, amount of G.K. Beale in here, which. Uh, 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 I'm always uh, uh, love reading his stuff, and um, um, uh, we've we've seen a spattering of of other people uh, in this chapter who have, have talked about uh, this this very factor of of how uh, majestic it is, and you you couldn't stop writing about it. That's why uh, Christians 
are, are forced um, by, by our new hearts to write books because <laughs> we're, we're, we're trying to uh, follow after in, in God's own footsteps uh, in yeah. his story. So again, uh, thanks for continuing to, to read with us and uh, we'll, we'll uh, look into the, the peerless redeemer uh, next in chapter 14. Thank you. And we'll see you next time. See you next time.